I am Andrew Ron. I'm an accredited rural appraiser, and I am president of the Montana chapter of the ASFMRA and communications director for the Montana Farm and Ranch Brokers Association, the two top industry organizations in the state. I am also the proud creator of Montana LandSource, the industry standard for access to rural land listings and sales, and land market information and insights. I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. As a former commercial and ag banker, my main reason for doing this podcast is to simply gauge the market's appetite for crowdsourcing investment in a ranch real estate fund. For rural land enthusiasts who want to deepen their knowledge of the ranch real estate market, grow their portfolio, and be viewed as a trusted advisor, the Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Welcome to the Ranch Investor Podcast. Season 3, we have a guest from Season 1, so if you have the chance, go back to Season 1 and uh, we don't know what episode it is, but it was a good one. <laughs> it was eight. I actually remember It was that. eight. Episode eight. Chris Mayhews with Western Sustainability Exchange, one of our first guests, number eight, came on to talk to us about the, the budding and the new carbon sequestration market for perennial grasslands, for ranches. So two years later, we need to get an update. It's exciting to to hear what has happened since uh, COVID and over the last two years. Chris, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me again, guys. I appreciate the opportunity to give you an update and let you know where we're at right now. It's really an exciting time. We're in a big period of expansion. So I'm excited to tell you about that. Do you think we should have them do kind of a basic rundown of what carbon credits are, what the yeah, carbon let's, market let's is? Yeah, let's start over like no one has heard of this before. Like. They were born in 2021 after our first recording. <laughs> All right. That Maybe they're a good. millennial and they've had other uh, engagements. Yeah, they, they just, they just, they're, they're part of the, uh, the great resignation <laughs> since 2020. And now they're going to take plugging up, back in yep, regenerative agriculture. <laughs> they're pursuing a new, uh, a new venture. So what, it, what are, what is this? Why are, what are we talking about? All right. Well, that's hard to do in a short bit. So if you need to get the sheep hook out and yank me off the stage, do that. But I'll give you I'll try to give it to you in a nutshell. So basically what it is, is it's a marketplace for trading uh, carbon credits and those carbon credits can be generated from improved grazing practices. So what that means is basically if you're in a situation where you're a season long, you've got the cattle out in one or two pastures or you just move a few times a year. Or if you're, if you're moving cattle fairly frequently, but you see an opportunity or you'd like to improve upon that, then the management that you can engage in that's an improvement upon your baseline, which is where you've started, uh, you can trade carbon credits or basically what that is equates to is improved soil health. As your soil improves in health and increases in carbon, you can trade those credits in a free and voluntary marketplace. And the whole premise is tying more carbon out of the air and that the soil is an opportunity to do that, right? Through, right. through uh, regenerative practices. Exactly. Exactly. And we work with a company called Native. Out of, uh, they're out of Vermont, and they're a B corporation. And they, they have worked on all the documentation and uh, due diligence uh, science that goes into validating that those carbon credits are legitimate. So when a company that purchases a carbon credit receives a certificate, there is a lot of paperwork, there's a lot of planning and due diligence that has to go into documenting that. Native has taken care of that whole, uh, uh, I guess if you will, demand side of the equation. And then our role here in Montana where we're running this trial is to work on the supply side. So we work with the ranchers on, on the grazing plans, the grazing management, kind of getting an infrastructure plan laid out for water and fence improvements. Uh, and how they're going to deal with labor, all those different challenges. And then uh, once they get to contracting stage, then we turn them over to Native, and they, uh, they work with them beyond that. And the reason that these have demand is that other companies that have carbon impacts can buy these to offset their carbon impacts. So if they're in manufacturing or uh, maybe, is it, is, does it tie into maybe clearing land, like taking land out of production, or is it really just kind of manufacturing and releasing carbon, or what's the... It can be any company. So uh, three years ago when we started 
four years ago when we launched this project, we had a tour at the Enderlin Ranch and we had 11 companies come out and to learn about this program. Uh, mm -hmm. One of those companies was Disney. And the, the gal that came out that managed their carbon portfolio uh, talked to us, presented us with some numbers about what their carbon footprint was that they had to cover. And it mm -hmm. was overwhelming. I mean, I, I couldn't believe how much carbon they had to offset. All those but, small world rides around those small world rides. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and what, the, what she equated to. All the Mickey Mouses. To, and, uh, <laughs> their, biggest, their biggest carbon emissions source is cruise ships. So she oh, said, sure. imagine 30 cruise ships in the Gulf of Mexico and what they put out every day. She said, we, we as a company, you know, Disney, if you've seen a lot of their movies, which most people have, they market the environment in a lot of their movies. A lot of it is about a healthy environment and about, uh, you know, taking care of things. And, um, you know, whatever the theme is, a lot of their rides are, are based on, on a clean environment. And so they can't really market that in good faith to their customers without doing that, doing their job to offset that. So they have sustainability practices internally where they manage their waste streams. They try to source regenerative food, food that's grown in a more responsible manner. But there's a certain amount of that that they can't offset themselves that they have to go out to a marketplace and purchase credits for. And so that's where the motivation comes from these companies to produce or, or to offset these credits. And ranching and improved grazing is one way that we can be a supplier into that marketplace. And working with WSE and Native Energy legitimizes this, this budding infancy of a market because you can't just put your carbon credits on Craigslist, I'm, I'm <laughs> guessing. Exactly. Um, well, and we're going through that right now with uh, shit coins that uh, – it is the Wild West. Anyone can create a shit coin. <laughs> I thought you misspoke there for a minute. <laughs> hey, I, I'm following I, you now. I'm a firm believer in not just the utility or not just the underlying technology of, of uh, cryptocurrencies, but the utility of them. I am a, I am a Bitcoiner, proud mm -hmm. Bitcoiner, but there are nefarious players out there. It's, it's an unrealized market at this point, and you guys are bringing realization to a voluntary market you're you're certifying that uh these are not shit coins that you're selling that the <laughs> exactly. rancher the rancher has not minted his own shit coin <laughs> exactly <laughs> to be we're, sold on pancake swap we're not producing crap credits here to, 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 use your, to coin some new, new terminology along the lines that you're talking about and it is it is a wild west. There's all are a lot of companies coming into this space and and claiming that they can trade carbon credits and hmm. uh, you know you can. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to look at that and um, uh, it would be easy to. Uh, there's a lot of different. There's a lot of science out there. There's a lot of different practices. It's easy to come into the marketplace and claim that you have something if you have some producer behind you and you can show that they're making some kind of a difference. But I really feel I'm excited to be partnered with Native on this because I really feel like they're they're being very true to the science side of it, the legal side of it, the paperwork side of it to make sure that the, that the credits are legitimate and that when a when the model that we're using predicts x number of tons per acre per year are being sequestered that they're go out, going out and measuring that too mm. and ensuring that that measurement concurs with the model and that the model's corrected over time and this market is still in its infancy correct as far as a functioning market for trading credits that's correct yes as far as i know we're still the only uh well we're the only registered and, and validated uh credit carbon credit marketplace for grazing practices. There are, you know, there's numerous programs and, and projects out there for, uh, for avoided conversion. I think you might've mentioned that before as an option for farming practices, for forestry practices, but I th we're, the, we're one of the only ones, and I think the only one that uses a modeled as well as a measured approach hmm. to calculate carbon credits. And that has been gone through the scientific rigor and the peer review and the auditing process to be registered on a, on an international independent exchange. Hmm. So do you pretty see, excited about that. Do you see a day in the future where there will be an exchange and a secondary marketplace for these credits? I really don't, I don't know about that. I'm sure that whatever the market will bear, uh, the market will create. And, that, you know, there's always entrepreneurs out there that are ready to create a new 
to insert themselves into the process if some new level of due diligence or some new opportunity for a sub brokerage or you know some kind of additional level of marketing if there's an opportunity for that someone's going to grasp onto it but Could, that's that has been a call i have received andy and different mm -hmm. uh bitcoin blockchain technology entrepreneurs are saying how can we put these carbon credits on the blockchain so that they are tradable exchangeable uh, uh immutable so that there's a history showing use benefit uh, but then also exchanging it, the liquidity, mm -hmm. transferability. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that is, uh, seems like there's a few entrepreneurs out there who see that as the next $2 trillion market to go disrupt and go get a 10% stake in a $2 trillion market. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if I, I don't know that I understand your question clearly a hundred percent, but, but the one thing I would say as a clarification is that these credits are fully retired once they've been exchanged between the the seller and the buyer. So once the seller has purchased that credit from a ranch and has used their that claim in their marketing. So once they've said, well, for, you know, for 2021, we had X number of tons of carbon that we admitted into the atmosphere and we offset it from this number of acres of grazing lands those credits then have been claimed, they've been fully exhausted and retired, if that makes sense, because it is hard to understand the nuances of the marketplace sometimes. But, but from the way I understand it, once that certificate has been issued for those credits, then they're retired and they have no more value to anyone beyond that once the company's made that claim and, and, and retired that certificate. So it's a one-time transaction, there aren't ongoing uh, carbon credit opportunities where kind of year after year? Well, so the, so yes and no. So the company will continue to, once those credits for that year have been consumed and retired, then yes, they can't be reissued. They're, mm -hmm. they're done. But then the next year, the company will have their, their new set of carbon, carbon emissions that they've, that they've accounted for. And then they'll go out and purchase a new set of credits and receive certificates for those credits new tons of carbon per acre in a different place or on the same property, but cumulative beyond what was accumulated the year before, if that makes sense, um, beyond that. So yeah, the marketplace is, is 100% based on additionality. None, mm -hmm. it, all, it all is from this point forward. I think I, I can see a point once, once this commodity is a proven thing and it's widely accepted because we really are in the beginning stages of it. But once it's more of a widely accepted science and practice and, and a lot of the due diligence is approved and, and fully vetted, then I think we, there might be opportunities to look back and say, well, I've been doing these practices for 10 years. I happened to take soil samples in 2011 and I have that data. Mm. There might be a chance to look mm. in the rearview mirror and receive credits for something like that, but you'd have to have a lot of record keeping and it would have to match the rigor and the science of today's standards in order to, in order to be legitimate. So the calls I get on this, I'm realizing, I think fall into two camps. One of them is an existing landowner that's looking uh, and calls me up and asks if they can get some kind of enhanced appraisal or enhanced value because of potential carbon, you know, market potential credit potential on their property. And it's pretty easy to just opt out with the standard appraisal uh, disclaimer. It's like, you know, market's not established, too speculative, you know, that kind of thing, unfortunately. Uh, and then the other kind of call I think is more like the potential investor. And I think they're looking for, you know, they're, they're trying to piece something together where they can buy a property. And a lot of these guys, man, I think they kind of will cast a wide net, you know, can they do a partial development? Can they get some carbon credits? Can they, so they're, they're fishing. Um, and the answer is kind of the same there too. It's like, boy, you know, just real uh, early stage market really hard as an appraiser. I mean, we need, we need hard data, you know, we need a market to, so, and, and plus, uh, you know, it's just interesting. You can kind of smell. Uh, you know, when people are, are being pretty opportunistic and they're just, and they, and they, it's interesting too. I just realized in this conversation, they don't, I don't get calls to people that seem to really understand carbon. It's not like these guys are really understand this market and they're calling me to, for my additional expertise, they seem to be 
almost like speculators, right? Almost right. like the early right. t- early tire kicker kind of. Those are most of my calls. Yeah, no, I think that's very, I think that's very true. And uh, uh, I hope, though, Andy, as an appraiser, that you know that we're out there gathering good data. You've at least penciled in a line <laughs> item on your appraisal for what we're going to call carbon value or I got a slot motivation. I got a slot ready for you. I'm, that's I'm good. Got that's it. I've got it in my template. It's that's, just... a, that's all I can expect at this point in time. You know, us uh, brokers, real estate agents, we take a lot of shit for embellishing mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh oh, where's this going? <laughs> we're, we're not nearly as bad as landowners. <laughs> I thought he was going to go into appraisers. I was bracing myself for a while. Where are they no, going? They're, they're I was going to go take a bathroom break. Actually, I'm like, okay, I'm out. These guys will handle this. For yes, a while. here's my soapbox. <laughs> but but to uh, respond, Andy, to your point, we actually had a uh, uh, not a legitimate business yet, but it was some speculators. Uh, some guys that had assembled a group of investors that were looking at buying ranches across the West, and they hired us to go do an evaluation of a ranch of their existing carbon levels in the soil and look mm. at the existing management to see if that ranch that they were, they were potentially going to buy would have the potential to earn carbon credits and what that financially would mean, both in the short term from a cash flow standpoint on the profit and loss every year, right. but then also from a valuation standpoint, what that, might, uh, what that might add to the value of the ranch over time if they were able to regenerate the ranch, make it more productive, which is a real, which is a real value as well. Um, and uh, it was really an interesting project, you know, mm-hmm. both learning from him what the demands of his investors were, what they wanted to know in order to do their due diligence to make a decision on whether or not to purchase the property, but then also to think about the long-term ramifications and what, that, what those values might look like on a profit and loss statement. And as part of the exercise, we ran some financial projections on the ranch with carbon credits and without carbon credits and looking at mm-hmm. different management scenarios. So... There's enough science there now to at least speculate on that. We were very clear with him that this is we were early in the process, and uh, you know this was in a different state. This wasn't in Montana, so we couldn't trade those carbon credits in our program. But that there might be another one that would be available, or when we expand, then eventually they could trade carbon credits on that ranch. But um, it was it was fun for us to be able to go through that exercise and see what it looks like from an investor's perspective because. You know, they paid us to go out and gather that information. A turning point will be when we, whenever we see marketing show up, a, ra- a ranch teed up for uh, carbon credits. <laughs> oh, guilty. Oh, guilty. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be the same thing like marketing, same thing for conservation easement, as if any property isn't eligible for a yeah. conservation easement, you know, but uh, it'll be interesting to watch. As if... Uh, Every ranch in Montana doesn't have great hunting opportunities. Right, right. <laughs> so you can market whatever you want, but until it's on Andy's appraisal sheet, it really doesn't count. Is that what we're saying? Uh, yeah. Here? yeah. Well, I put it out there. It's in my brochure, but uh, you know, testing the market, Andy. Here's this, here's a data point for you, anecdotal. I've had zero calls based on that that statement. <laughs> uh, well, let's start over. Take me through a case. I'm a landowner. Yeah. And I just want to kick your tires, Chris. I want to see how rich you can make me. I'm only interested if uh, if it's going to make me a lot of money. I don't like to do a lot of changes. I'm your traditional Montana <laughs> landowner. That sounds like every single person that's applied for the program so far. That's just how it works, Walter. <laughs> so, uh, so basically the way, what my pitch is, is that first of all, this program isn't for everyone. Unless you're willing and and able to make a pretty significant shift in your thinking toward a more managed and and deliberate approach to uh, planning your grazing and changing it significantly, then this program probably isn't going to work for you. The other thing is, is that we're in such early stages of development with this project. You know, we've been validated on that very exchange. That, That means that most of our processes and documentation have been audited and and reviewed and vetted by by scientists and and financial people and um, so a lot of those processes are becoming more solid but it's still it's still a a bit of a moving target and so for folks that that don't have a lot of patience and and can't roll with the punches a bit as we've as we 
formulate and understand better what this should look like going into the future, you know, it's, it's not, we're not on really solid ground yet. So you've got to be willing to, to be flexible and work with us. Sounds like you have to have the bandwidth to be an early adopter. Early adopter, innovator, that's the stage of business development. That, and the that early adopters, uh, don't, don't they tend to spend an, an inordinate, not inordinate, but a higher amount of effort and whatnot early stage. Right, it's, right. It'll, it, the hurdles become lower as it, as it evolves, but early stage always kind of pays a higher cost essentially i think time so. yeah. effort yeah we started uh, the first contracts were signed in 2018 so we're going on four years now that was four ranches and about thirty-six thousand acres uh, we added a ranch two summers ago uh, and so we're uh, and, and we're looking at adding six more ranches in the next uh hopefully two to three months, which would put us at about 140,000 acres. Mm. And so that'd be 10 ranches and about 140,000 acres. Um, we've got another 250,000 acres in the pipeline. So by the end of the year, we'd like to be, I hate to over project here, because it does take time to get through all of the due diligence and the contracting process. But you know, we'd like to be to 250,000 acres or so by the end of this year. Mm. And Native wants to be at a million acres in the next two years. So they've got a really aggressive development schedule. When we got validated in April or March, whenever that was, and the project was registered on the Vera Exchange, there were a lot of companies that, that need to purchase carbon credits that wanted this kind of a credit. I mean, having knowing that your, that your carbon credit is coming from a ranching family in Montana, near or around one of the national parks is a really attractive the yellowstone show <laughs> easy yeah, there you go it's real the duttons are fighting over carbon credits does the long black train station to those uh, corpses count as credit as carbon <laughs> they are they are black they are decomposing um anyway um I guess, Coulter, to go back to your original question. So the way, the way it works is you got to be committed and you got to be ready to make a change. If you're ready to do that and roll with the punches, then uh, we have an application that, that they fill out online. It's not difficult. It takes about 15 to 20 minutes to basically describe your operation, describe your grazing history, um, tell us a little bit about where you'd like to get to from a management standpoint. And, uh, and then once you've been through that process, then uh, you've got to... Fill out, we've got to get a good set of maps for the ranch, and we need to match then those maps up with a spreadsheet where we can track your grazing for the last several years so we can get your baseline level of grazing, for, and it's a pasture-by-pasture pasture analysis. Um, and then we look at a five-year plan. So looking at a, that pasture-by-pasture pasture, uh, spreadsheet, if you've got a section and you can split it 10 times if you put in three tanks, then that's the level of detail that we need to know in order to be able to project how many tons of carbon you could sequester in that five-year period. Once you get through all that due diligence, uh, there's, a, there's some other questionnaires and things that need to be filled out. Uh, in the end, what Native needs to know before they contract is basically the, the potential of your ranch to sequester carbon. That includes your emissions, so they also ask you about you know, how many hours you put on your tractors every year, how many miles you put on your trucks, what your, what your carbon footprint is. How so often the be, wife goes to town. How often the wife, yeah, that's important <laughs> too. But they want to be able to net that out so that, they can, so that no one can come back and argue that your ranch is not carbon negative. In other words, that your ranch is not producing credits. They want to make sure they've covered all of that. So we might have blown past this, especially for people that maybe aren't uh, intricately familiar with uh, ranching and grazing, but that carbon, more carbon can be sequestered from the air by different grazing practices. And by better grazing practices, more carbon is sequestered into grassland soil. So we, we kind of blew past that yeah. maybe for some. But. So the first thing I always like to say when when that question comes up is that I really believe, and I have for my whole 30-some year career, that ranchers and farmers are the stewards of our, of our range and open lands. And they've done a good job of that for, for decades. They've done the best job they can do of that. Otherwise, they would have gone out of business. There's, you know, there's more and more scrutiny and criticism of farming practices and ranching practices. And, and that's okay because the public knows more about what's going on out there in the middle of nowhere all the time. And so we need to be accountable for that, and we can do better. So the, so the first point I like to make is they're pretty amazing stewards already. 
But there's a lot of the work that we can do to improve on that. And so from a, what we're talking about from this context is a lot of folks don't spend time managing their animals in the summer and the fall when they're out on rangelands. They are busy irrigating. They're busy putting up hay. They're busy, uh, you know, taking care of the things on the farm that provide for those animals in the wintertime so that they can have feed to give them. And so for, the, for a lot of folks, the, the livestock are put out on pasture and moved around occasionally because that they just have limited time and resources to do that. And so what's happened over time is that those animals have selected certain plants and they've neglected other plants because they're, the, the preferred plants are better for them. They're more nutritious. They taste better uh, and they, they allow them to put on more weight. Those plants have been selected out of the plant community for the most part or diminished. And the plants that they don't like have, have also died off because they need to be grazed as well. And so what we're talking about in a nutshell is forcing the animals to eat all the plants in a pasture so that it puts them all on an equal competitive playing field. And then all those plants do better after that grazing event because you're able to give it a longer rest period because they're in a smaller, smaller portion of the ranch for a shorter period of time. And then they move to the next portion. So I'm going to challenge you. And I think, I think I was in the car with my dad after we recorded last time and rest his soul. Uh, and I think my dad and your grandfather had uh, history or were friends or there's, yeah. some sto- there's some story there. But anyway. They dr- drank Olympia beer. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> that's, that's a no-brainer there. Uh, but I'm driving with dad after this recording, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote him and challenge you. He says, so, so we're going to pay ranchers for doing what they already do. That was that's his. A- that's a great question, and, and I get it Sounds all Sounds like government, like FSA and NRCS. That's, that's kind of where he was coming from. Like another program to pay your ranchers for what they already freaking do. What's the, what, what the hell? I hear that a lot, and I understand that. It's a, valid, it's a valid question. And I will say that you know most of the innovators, the early adopters that we are working with, we're going to do this anyway. We're not changing anyone's mm-hmm. opinions or long-term future outlooks for how they're going to graze their property mm-hmm. eventually we'll get to those folks but right now we are working with the innovators that that had started down this path but i'll give you an example uh the milton ranch up here at roundup oh yeah bill milton bill, bill milton and, yeah applied for the program early on he was one of our original applicants and we i looked at his application i visited with him i was really excited about having him involved because they bill's been practicing holistic management right. since the mid 80s right and so when we received his application and Native looked at it, they said, well, we're not sure that he'll be eligible because he's been doing a good job for 40 years already. What more, what additional could he possibly do hmm. that, would, that would create a carbon credit in this marketplace? So, so that concept of additionality is key to what Native is putting out there. So if you can't do something additional beyond what you're doing today, you're probably not eligible to receive a credit. And the reason you can't do that on your own or the reason that you need help to do that is that cattle markets, the commodities, are not paying the bills. These guys are barely breaking even as it is. And so for them to go out and spend $300,000, that's a pretty reasonable, two to $300,000 is a pretty average number when it comes to fencing improvements, digging and putting in wells and water lines and pipelines and tanks and storage tanks. I mean, the infrastructure it takes to improve your system is, is significant. So anyway, we're looking at a rancher that's been doing holistic management for 40 years. And, you know, Bill talks about it on his website. Yeah, we're, we've bought in. We're doing this stuff. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're walking the walk here. And so we looked at that and I said, well, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe his carbon levels are high enough and he's already done enough on his ranch that we can't improve upon that. Well, it's the problem if you're an early, early adopter. Right, right. <laughs> As it turned out, we... You're too good. You don't apply. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And, and, and what's more, I mean, he, he has a hired range consultant that helps him every year to gather data and help him with his grazing planning because, by the way, over half the place is BLM. So, you know, he saw the value of that a long time ago, that having an d- additional person on hand to help him document his practices and show his... his rangeland stewardship was going to pay for him in the long term Mm -hmm. and it really has but anyway 
the, the point of uh, the way I would respond to your dad's question is <laughs> we took a guy that we thought would not even be eligible. Mm -hmm. And he's done more in the four years that we, he's been a part of the program than any of the other producers that we're aware of. He went from moving cattle every seven to 10 days was his rotation, which is pretty good. I mean, if you can- yeah. At in Montana, to, that's incredible. Seven to 10 days yeah. prevents overgrazing because if you can get in and get out before those plants start to regrow, which, you know, seven to 10 days is a reasonable amount of time, they get a decent amount of chance, chance to recover. Well, he went from that four years ago to now this last year in a lot of his pastures, he moved two to three times a day. And he Whoa. did that also during the calving season, which most people would say is not possible. Huh? But, you know, the level of innovation and the opportunity out there is really huge once you've drank the Kool-Aid. Once you get it and you start seeing how much better the cattle act, how much happier they are, how much healthier they are, it's infectious. And it's we should be having a taste test right here, Chris. You should have brought in, you should have brought in samples of uh, carbon neutral beef sticks. But you have to get out and, and meet these guys and, and, and see their enthusiasm and their passion for what they're doing. They're, they're excited to be out there every day moving cows because it's, it's just fun. It's fun to have that close of a relationship with your herd and with your animals. And, you know, all people in ranching enjoy that or they wouldn't be out there every day sweating for 12 hours doing it. But like I said, most ranchers aren't with their cattle every day. But the more you're with them, it seems like the, it's just infectious. You want to be with them all the time. And it's fun to, it's fun to hear from and talk to those guys that are, that are out there doing it. Bill is certainly my favorite Birkenstocks and Buddhism rancher. <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly. That's what I was going to say, the Buddhist rancher. But there's a lot of folks across the state that are doing this now. Um, uh, yeah, so that, it's not just for the ultra progressive because right. uh, we have a mutual friend, your client, my buddy up in uh, north central Montana, where these 200 to $300,000 of improvements you mentioned, um, that's, that's just nice. That helps them accomplish running a larger herd. So now they are optimizing overheads um, and they're growing their herd. They're more drought resistant. They're more resilient to uh, weather patterns, but they're creating a larger profit margin year in and year out. And so and they, they're not Birkenstocks in Buddhism. Uh, <laughs> no, they're fourth and fifth generation the, ag families with boots and belt buckles. Well, and they're, they're profit driven. They're, exactly. They, are, they want cash in the pocket, and yeah. as most people do. And so, yeah, this isn't just for those who are altruistic or idealistic. Right. Well, and I will say this for Bill being, you know, aside from his Birkenstocks, he, you know, the, his family bought this ranch back in the 70s, I think, or 60s. And he's lived there and, and been a rancher his, his whole working life. And, you know, you, you probably, most people wouldn't want to call him a cowboy, but he's definitely a rancher and he's a cattle producer and he's doing it for profitability i mean in the end yes he wouldn't he's got no one subsidizing his ranch so you know he's doing it and he's sweating and and he's out there every day just like everybody else well that's he would say as part of his holistic values and the triple bottom line that there has to be profit because you have to reinvest in the ranch you have to pay people on the ranch so that they can go to college uh, you got to pay people. You got to create profit so they can put food on the table. He absolutely believes in creating profit. And the other part of it is Bill has been a, a part-time consultant for folks in succession for a long time. He goes, he sits down with families right. mediation, and does succession mediation, planning. Yeah. Bill's getting ready to pass his ranch on to the next generation in a few years. His, his kids are talking about coming back. And mm -hmm. so that's the other part of it is not just profitability today, but you've got to create a, a legacy of profitability so that your kids want to come back. And that they don't come back to a ranch where it's just work all the time, that it actually is fun and you enjoy it. And that's, that's the other thing I would say about these more progressive or innovative folks is that they've really turned the corner in their operations from ranching for lifestyle to truly ranching for profit. And they're, mm. once they've turned that corner and made that decision, they're doing everything they do every day for, for fun and because they love it and because they want to not because it's what they have to do and what they've always done. You, you have more fun when you're making money. <laughs> you do. You do. Well, and this yeah. is, you know, this is the Ranch Investor Podcast, and we do like to talk about, you know, land values and long time, 
investment. And, you know, we're a long way from knowing about whether these properties, you know, will have any kind of increase or, or impact one way or the other in terms of demand, you know, moving forward. But in general, the things you just outlined, you know, a well-run place, as profitable as possible. And, you know, I was just reading uh, Washington Post put out a big piece on Western ranch ownership and, and the mystique and the, what's driving the market, which is outstripped production for a long time now. But it's not hard to imagine moving forward uh, environmental concerns and consciousness, that kind of thing. You know, a ranch that's just in general, all the things you've described that go into being part of a carbon credit program uh, in some ways checks a lot of boxes as a desirable ranch uh, as far as just the investment of that asset if it does leave the family kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know? Well, and it does, it does, it increases the soil health, it increases the biodiversity, uh, the water quality, the water, the, it infiltrates more water, the ranch retains more water, yeah. and so it becomes more productive in the long term. A lot of the ranches that are part of our program as opposed to 10 years ago, are resting, you know, t 10 to 20, sometimes 30 percent of the ranch on it, on, depending on the year. On a good, on, you know, last year, nobody really was able to rest anything. But, right. but, if you, but you can at least graze during different seasons. Mm -hmm. That benefits. So a deferment is if you can't rest, at least you can defer that use. But, um, you know, Bill, for example, Milton, I think he's up to resting somewhere between 20 and 35 or 40 percent of the ranch every single year. And 10 years ago, they were probably using everything. So mm -hmm. you can and he's got the same number of cows out there. So you can you can see from and I'll give a plug really quick for the Seabin Ranch up at Cascade. We we help to promote a grazing workshop that they do every year it's a day-long grazing workshop they start in january they try to pick the nicest days to do it uh, and it's it's for 15 to 20 ranchers per day and they take you out to their herd which is 1100 animals 1100 mother cows and they are moving them at least once a day all winter unless they have a storm event that comes in and and they've got a feed but um, just to use them as an example, and I did want to plug that grazing workshop because if you want to see this in action, that's mm. the best place to do it and the best time of year because a lot of ranchers have a little bit of slack time then to do some things. And They're go, not moving their cows every day. Get educated. Not, not many. <laughs> some of them are. Most of them that come to the workshop actually are. Hopefully they're listening to this in the tractor while they're rolling out hay. There you go. <laughs> that's, what yeah, that's what they're doing. Anyway, to use that as an example, um, and these are rough numbers, obviously, and they're they're probably a little bit incorrect, so don't take them to the bank. But, you know, 10 years ago, they were using all of their winter pasture, and so they were grazing 100% of it and feeding for four to six weeks. Um, they, they try to feed for a week or less now, mm. and they've been able to accomplish that the last several years, and they're resting 20 to 30% of that pasture. So if you look at, and they've got more animals. So, you know, they've increased their the number of animals, they've decreased the amount of pastures that they're using every year and so you know the only way you can equate that is through better utilization and increased productivity isn't less winter feeding one of the biggest ways to not lose your ass and rain <laughs> doesn't feeding basically kill the easiest way to create profit is to reduce winter feed yeah, yeah. and yeah. and i would i would argue that the biggest cost of that is the equipment itself like having to buy and and debt service and maintain that equipment and put fuel in it is it just sucks the life out of you. And, you know, and, and let alone the amount of time that it takes to go out there every day. I mean, the other, the other data that Cooper uses is, is, you know, a lot of people argue Cooper Hibbard from the Seabin Ranch. A lot of people would argue, well, you're going out there every day and having to move fence and move cows. That's a pretty labor-intensive option, right? How do you justify that? Well, it used to take two guys six hours every day to feed those cows because they'd have to haul all those bales out to the field. They'd have to, you know, do all the work that it takes to unroll them and get all that done. Now, and that's every day, two guys, six hours every day. Now he's got one guy. Not to mention fuel and equipment. and. But that's it. Yeah. yeah. But just from a labor standpoint, because a lot of people say, well, I can't do that because I don't have the help. Right. Well, you yourself are out there for how many hours a day feeding cattle. It took two guys six hours. Now he's got one guy out there, and he's out there every day, but he goes out for a couple hours, and he's got all of his fences set out two, three days ahead of time in front of the cows. He's checking water. He's checking cattle health. He's spending a lot more time with the animals, 
And he doesn't have to move them because once he opens the gate, they know that when he comes out, they know if he's going to move it or not by where the dog is, if it's in the back or in the front or, you know, they, they get used to that. They're ready to move. And the minute he opens the gate, they just, they come running through the gate, through so the pasture. Isn't that kind of a, a reversal or a rollback to the way ranching was? I mean, back in the day, weren't cowboys on horseback following horses or following cattle around a lot more? Before is we it, had all the equipment. Is it kind of a, farming is it kind of a return in a way to you know, more spending time with cows, I guess you could say. I think it is. If you, if you look at the, at the philosophy of the progressive grazing movement, so Jim Garrish and Greg Judy and, and all of those professors of grazing management and the ranching for profit course, it's all based on lower inputs. And, and, and we've been able to afford those inputs lately, uh, or, or we've been able to afford those inputs for the last several decades because of profit margins and expenses and things, but it's getting to the point where we really can't afford those inputs anymore with equipment and fuel and everything the way it is. And, and you know, back, back during the day of the Drover days, we just didn't have the technology. We didn't have the equipment. So uh, we had it and we used it while we could, but, you know, it won't be long before we can't afford that stuff anymore. And so you're going to have to move to a leaner, lower input operation. I think you could argue it hasn't been affordable for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you could. Probably why we have a lot of wealthy landowners in this state and, and non-traditional families. Well, I want to take a, I want to throw a hard one at you like you're the White House press secretary. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> Are we about out of time? <laughs> no, we have 20 minutes left. So I just came back from the RCAF convention. And a concern, continued concern for ranchers uh, who are owner operators. We still have a large segment of the population that own the land that they ranch on. Um, they are worried that there is a push for control of food supplies, food systems, uh, a 30 by 30 kind of a government takings of private property rights. And if I were to go out and talk to my friends and uh, peers in the RCAF uh, segment, that RCAF group, uh, and I were to tell them, hey, you should join this, join this uh, carbon movement that's backed by Patagonia and Disney, <laughs> you'd probably find me walking down the highway without my boots <laughs> and cell phone and wallet. If not hung from the highest tree. Huh? <laughs> no. I, uh, I hear that and I get that and uh, believe it or not, I, my first job out of college was working for the Montana Stock Growers Association as their natural resource coordinator. So I started my career in the middle of that fight uh, and that fight will continue. And, and uh, this isn't a, if you can't beat them, join them kind of thing that we're working on. This is about recognizing that wave coming and hitting it right between the eyes. In, so in my opinion, you can fight the political fight all you want to and avoid this stuff and call it environmentalism and something that you don't want to do based on principles, damn it, and we're just going to keep fighting it. But my argument is why, why fight something that you've already won? Like you are the best stewards of the environment. It is in the public's best interest to have you out there. Go out there and do the best job you possibly can in managing your animals and in sequestering carbon and creating a healthier environment because that increases your bottom line and then prove it to everyone. Oh, and by the way, sell a carbon is a commodity for, a, for an enterprise stacking opportunity on top of that instead of fighting it. I, I, to me, it's, it's, silly. It's, it's silly to be that prideful. Yeah. Go for it, because and people will continue to do that. But we're talking about real money here, and we're talking about we're not talking about regulation or government or anything to be afraid of. And you can be afraid of Patagonia and Disney, I guess, if you want to. But they have real consumers with real money who are spending that money on the environment. So if you can be a better steward of the environment and get paid to do it, what's wrong with that? Don't well, get I, mad. Get I money. Get yeah. I don't get it. Well, the other <laughs> thing that comes to my mind is, in a way, it's a little bit of protection or insurance. I mean, because if you if you if you stick your head in the stand on this stuff, you are uh, vulnerable to, you know, who knows, uh, environmental regulation, endangered species regulation, stuff like that. But it, you know, it kind of goes back to remember uh, the rangeland monitoring 
uh, right. that you and I were part of, right. you know, years ago. And that that's the way Charlie Orchard kind of packaged that at the time was like, this is kind of an insurance policy. This is documenting what you do. And if, if you don't, you're, you're, you're suspect to getting sideswiped and being accused of things. So you kind of, you know, so there, I can see a protection side of, uh, participation yeah. in this, in this world, you know, documenting what you do and, and, and asserting that you, and, you know, I mean, these groups are doing some of that, you know, some could argue it's a little bit of greenwashing, you know, the undaunted stewardship and that kind of stuff, but finding the truth and the, or the, the reality and in, in those campaigns and then mm-hmm. what, uh, landowners are already doing. Yeah. Like you say, and like our friends in North central Montana, I, they, they have mentioned that if you're not writing the menu, you're going to be on the menu. That's so if you're, con- if you're concerned that Patagonia and Disney are writing the menu, uh, pull up a chair to the table, get involved in the conversation. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm, I got on my soapbox a little bit there, Coulter. You put me on the defensive, by putting the spotlight on me. You addressed that way better he than didn't. the White House press secretary. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, that might be a compliment. Is that your next gig? Is that your are you? <laughs> right? But I really think you know. I think it's important to stress again the concept of additionality that these ranchers really are doing something different than they have been doing, and that this money gets put on the ground in the form of infrastructure to help them make that change. And, you know, for those guys that are more conventional and and uh, don't want to make this change because some companies or regulations making them do it, then do it for yourself. Because, you know, moving your cattle more frequently and letting your pastures rest for longer periods only helps your bottom line. I mean, the, the science, the economics, the proof is already there. Everyone who's done this and committed to it successfully is way better off than they were before they started. None of them would go back. So, so. Chris, what about conversion from cropland to grass? I always thought that that was one of the uh, pinnacle opportunities for soil, car- soil carbon. Yes, and I think it is. Uh, that, that part of it isn't addressed in our specific project. Uh, Native is working on a on a, a companion project to ours out in the Palouse region uh, in Oregon and Washington, and that considers um, seeding farm ground back into grass or into cover crops, and you know having roots in the soil, having the ground covered and protected, and producing something all year round to protect the soil surface to bind it so there's roots in it year round and it doesn't erode as much, but also to create a lot more soil biology out there, which is the carbon credit that you get credit for, is that so that life in the soil. Um, so those projects are coming, and there's already a lot of pure farm projects to farm-related <clears throat> uh, farming, farming practices, practices yeah. that, that pay you for carbon credits. Uh, ours doesn't address that, and I don't have a lot of knowledge about that, but a lot of the producers that are in our program have seeded previously farmed acres back into grass and they're now grazing that. It's pretty interesting. I'm not sure 30 years ago being told that cows would be a part of the environmental solution was really on anybody's radar. <laughs> yeah, how, it's not. how far we've come, right? It's been a big, <laughs> big swing there. It is exciting and not, and not many people are saying that yet. We know that the, that the facts are true mm-hmm. and we've got prophets out there like alan savory that are you know banging the pulpit every day preaching about it and and uh it's indisputable but not everyone's bought into that yet so that we right. have a lot of work to do still and it's not what ruminant or bovine you graze it's how you graze it so exactly there there still is uh there's, I don't know, it's part of greenwashing, in my opinion, that bison are more... Uh, inherently more... Yes, yeah. inherently more beneficial for ecosystem services. Yeah. But it's not what you're grazing, it's how you're grazing. Right. The plant doesn't care what mouth is biting it off. It just needs to be bitten off and then Peed it needs to be arrested. Yep. Yeah, it needs that grazing activity. Yep. The only thing I would say from a bison standpoint is when you turn a group of bison into the pasture, they stay pretty close together and they graze in a mob already where you turn a group of cows out in the pasture, they're going to they're gonna scatter out and wander to all the corners of the pasture and they could care less if they're together or not. You can reassemble, recreate that herd instinct over time through this kind of management. It's better for the cattle health. It's better for their security. They're less susceptible to predators. There's all kinds of reasons why that works better, but it's absolutely better for the resource. 
And shout out to John Hansen from last season, who is a bison grazing consultant we had on the podcast. He He's back up in Montana doing a lot of consulting work. So if anyone has any questions, um, I think I think this push for bison ranches is really cool. I, I would love to be a part of it. I, I think I love eating bison. Uh, I like Wagyu better, but <laughs> <laughs> I have fancy tastes. <laughs> so no, I, I'm not trying to disparage bison by any means. Um, I think it's great. And if it gets people exciting about, excited about better grazing and how they can interact with the community and the ecosystem, I'm all for it. Let's go. Ha- let's have fun. That's what this should be about. I yeah. get the sense that the bison thing, when it first came out, really just had to do with being grass-fed as much as anything. It was it was promoted as a health food, but it was mostly because it was grass-fed. I have heard a certain individual, though, not to mention any names in the southwestern part of the state, who owns <laughs> most of the land and runs bison on it, who has claimed for years that bison are the are much better at managing the resource and taking care of it because they just know better and they were always here well, than cattle, there are stupid st- old there, cows. There are stories going back on that ranch <laughs> and management of that ranch. Yeah. And it took a few cycles. Uh, the, the point is that whether it's a cattle or a bison or what a sheep or anything else, they all need to be managed. The fact is what we're trying to mimic is, is large, uh, car- large herbivores that were managed by predators hundreds of years ago for millennia. We need, to, we need to replace the role of those predators, keeping the animals in tight groups, not letting them stray out, and keeping them moving. And that's what ultimately brings those rangelands back to health is that kind of grazing activity. Now, you mentioned the farming project in the Palouse. Um, carbon credits for farmers and ranchers is, is a national interest. And you guys have have your segment here in Montana. Hopefully you get to a million acres. I'd love to see that very quickly. Uh, but we have a lot of listeners in Oklahoma where they, I think 30 inches of annual precip is probably a bad year. Right. So who do they get in touch with? Uh, it's going to be completely different market rates, uh, completely different grazing programs other than you're still rest and ro- uh, resting and rotating. But uh, monitoring, tracking, I mean, it's going to be – different based on soil geology, climate, seasonality, uh, grass species, like they got that, uh, those warm season grasses that cure early. Um, what's going on in the rest of the country? Are you guys involved in Oklahoma, Texas, or who can they get in touch with in those areas? Yeah, first off, our project covers all of Montana, a portion of Idaho, and the northern third of Wyoming. So we, we can take applications today for ranches in any of those areas that are ready to move forward. We're, uh, we're starting to talk to some ranches in South Dakota. Uh, sounds like Native might want to move that direction next. Um, I am, so that's kind of the scope of our project right now. And you know, we're hoping that the, sci- that the science will keep up with the project so that we can expand this to other areas. As, the, as consumers demand the product, we can continue to move into other states and serve, serve, serve ranchers in other areas. Um, there is a project in Texas called Grassroots Carbon. I know of some folks that are working with that company, that movement, uh, and I know that they've contracted several ranches down in that area. It's probably at a similar stage of development to ours. Uh, I also know they're using some different science, and you know they've had to adapt and change their methodologies and adjust as we have. Um, but I don't know a lot about their business model, but there are a lot of different uh, businesses and organizations that are either getting into this and form, spinning off uh, satellite companies or forming new companies to create opportunities. So and the big things I would say is, you know, do a Google search. It's easy to find these companies. They do lots of marketing so you can find them. But understand what they're asking you to do. Understand what the due diligence is. Review the contracts ahead of time very carefully and make sure you know who's paying for the verification and the validation because that's really the most expensive part when it comes down to all this. I mean, well, obviously the infrastructure and the management is going to be the most expensive part for you in the short term, but it, it costs a lot of money to go out there and take those soil samples, to send them into a laboratory, to have all the procedures and processes and paperwork and, and uh, due diligence reviewed and, and passed through peer networks. That's a, a really expensive part to get all of that uh, accreditation done and to validate the carbon credit itself so make sure you understand that 
aspect of it and that that's either covered for you or that you're being compensated fairly so that you can afford to go pay for all that yourself. And how's the pricing established on this exchange? Um, well, it's a new market. And so, um, you know, until the procedures and everything have run a few courses, it's pro- we're probably on the low end of what the potential is. But it's also a really, uh, you know, Montana and the Mystique and Yellowstone and all, you know, Glacier and all the amenities that we have, they're easy credits to, to market. So mm-hmm. once we've really become established and the credits are proven and they're in the marketplace and they're solid and they're, you know, they've gone through that initial testing and the first companies have purchased them and they're satisfied and we've, we've really passed that first test of, okay, this doesn't, you know, it's passed the smell test. You're going to advertise on the Yellowstone show? <laughs> <laughs> not yet, but that's not my department. So it's po- anything's and possible. Is, is demand higher than supply at this point? I would say the answer to that is probably yes. I don't really work on that end of it, but because Native is putting so much pressure on us to recruit and get more ranches in the pipeline, and because we just got validated, and I and I know that there were a lot of companies waiting for that validation to take place, I think it's a, a quick going to be a quickly expanding marketplace. So maybe in a future uh, season of uh, Yellowstone, it'll be. Neighbors shooting neighbors over carbon. carbon yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it sounds like this isn't just a We're commodity. Tearing out fences and turning the cows loose. <laughs> Sabotaging their, car- their carbon credits. If there's drama, they'll find it. Yeah, well, and it sounds like this isn't just a commodity, that this could be a branded product, that my carbon credit in Hawaii is worth more than your carbon credit in, in uh, Iowa. So... We're running up against uh, the deadline here, but you wanted to talk about something else that's important, Chris. What, uh, what else do we have on our table today? Yeah, so we've got some really great workshops coming up. Um, first of all, I want to I uh, shout out to the Cascade Conservation District and the Montana uh, Rangeland Resources Program. They're having their range days coming up uh, August 30th and 31st in uh, uh, Cascade. Uh, and so be sure and register for that. And then uh, we're having a follow-up workshop to that with Nicole Masters and Alejandro Carrillo from the Chihuahuan Desert in Mexico. So that's going to be taking place in uh, Custer, just here east of Billings. Uh, that's September 2nd and 3rd. And then we also have a markets conference, Expanding Livestock Markets Conference, coming up in Lewistown. Uh, September 15th, we'll be doing a ranch tour of the Inderland Ranch. And then on the 16th, we'll be doing a program. Um, and basically, the, the impetus behind that is for these regenerative grazing practices, what companies out there are actually paying for it? What are the opportunities? And how can you learn more about it and be able to take advantage of that? So we're going to have a lot of company representatives there. We'll have a lot of ranchers there that are participating in these programs. And it'll be a chance to come and learn more about how this whole, how this whole marketplace works. And carbon credits are a part of that. So. And I, I will be there at Cascade in Lewistown. Looking forward to it. Yeah, and we appreciate the Ranch Investor Podcast for being there and for being a sponsor. Thank you very much. Oh, well, it's, it's my pleasure. I enjoy sponsoring this. I think what the work you're doing for not just family farmers and legacy ranches, but for the wildlife, the environment, for the Montana economy, and for my business of ranch investors, um, it just fits. Excellent. Well, Appreciate thank you. It. And uh, it really is a pleasure. I, I love the work. And, uh, you know, you talked earlier about characterizing our organization and what we do. I mean, what this is all about is ranchers just doing better conservation and getting paid for it and getting recognized for it. And I, I don't see how you can argue against that. So, yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, what you're doing hits home. It hits close to my values that we should always be looking to improve. And when things are going well, when we're challenging ourselves, when we have a vision that we're working towards, we're pursuing, and when we're making money, things are fun. You get along with your wife better. <laughs> your kids like you better. Yeah. Your employees want to stay. Your yeah. dog likes you better. Your neighbors aren't talking shit about you for your, for your character defects. They're talking shit about you because you have a new pickup. <laughs> and God forbid you might even get to go on a vacation. Yeah. Well, it's interesting actually that you say that, culture because I've noticed it. I have the same kind of values and attraction, you know, to progressive practices and all that kind of stuff. And part of that is that a lot of the practitioners seem to be having a damn better time. 
even though they're taking on more complexity, diving into things, early adopters sometimes, and, and stuff that sometimes doesn't work out. I mean, I think about organic certification, especially with beef, like back in the 80s. I mean, I knew some guys that threw on, in on that, tremendously expensive, not sure it really paid off for them, that kind of stuff. But uh, nonetheless, though, the innovators often seem to be the ones that enjoy themselves, actually have a you know, and the and the non-innovators are sometimes the ones that are griping and complaining and good old days and this and that and and you know government this and or you know, so it's it's, it's interesting. So I, what I hear in a lot of what you're talking about is opportunity for for innovation and to be rewarded for it. Basically, opportunities for reward for innovation. Yeah, and if yeah. you if you share some of these values and visions, Western Sustainability Exchange in Livingston, Montana, would appreciate a donation. They. They, uh, they have to keep the lights on, and they have an awesome team, Holly and Chris here, and uh, they, we want to see them continue, and it's not easy when you have to continually raise funds. So if you're interested, please send them a donation. They would greatly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for that too, guys. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk to you about this. And yeah, ranchers, uh, ranchers do a really good job of caring for the environment. We can always do better, but... You know, we need to we need to continue to improve and we need to keep multi-generational families out there on the on the range doing what they do best. And incentivizing the good the good stuff, the good practices. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for coming in, Chris. Thanks, Chris. All right. Thanks, guys. We feature only the best accredited and established rural real estate professionals who analyze, transact, and manage billions of dollars annually. No newbies here. Click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.